Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Hey everyone, from now until Valentine's Day, you can receive 25% off all of my full-length online courses. And so this is a great opportunity to pick up a course for yourself or give it as a gift to someone you love. Click on the link in the show notes to take advantage of the sale. Hi, this is Tammy Hill, and this is the Live Your Why podcast. Today, we are going to talk about overcoming sexual inhibitions. This is something that I visit with a lot of people about in my practice. I believe a lot of times we're not sure what's right, what's wrong, what can we do, what can't we do, and we get caught up a little bit in confusion and worry that maybe we're not really doing what we should be doing in the bedroom, and yet we want to be free to do what we really want to do in the bedroom. So I have invited Jennifer Finlayson Five to join me today. She's one of our favorite guests that comes back every season. And today we're going to talk about overcoming sexual inhibitions. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm always excited to visit with you. I admire your work. You know that I'm a big fan. But in my work with couples, I repeatedly have situations where thinking patterns or the brain somehow is preventing sexual enjoyment. You often teach about sexual meanings. Tell us about sexual meanings and how they suppress or help sexual responses. Mm-hmm. So a mentor of mine that I worked with for years, Dr. David Schnarch, he would talk about the idea that it's more important to us to belong to our sense of self than it is to be sexual. And another way of saying it is that the things that tend to make us desire sexuality are the meanings that make us feel alive, that make us, that expand our sense of self, that make us feel, you know, like when you're falling in love, when you're dating, you're meeting this new person, that person represents possibility your validation as a desirable person, right? All the unexpected, all the things that you could experience. And that is a meaning of expansion. And so you tend to feel a lot of desire. If, for example, you get married and you think, okay, well, I've been told that it's my duty to have sex and that I should do it at least once a week. And if I don't, he's going to be unfaithful. That's a constrictive meaning. That's a meaning in which I have to kind of produce something and in a way betray my sense of self in order to be sexual. And so desire goes down. And so we often are carrying meanings, like you said in your intro, Tammy, like, okay, should I be doing, is it okay? These are meanings of kind of like, am I going to be all right if I do this? That's going to make desire go down, right? And so we are often maintaining meanings that we may not even be fully aware of that are interfering with desire. You know, sometimes people have said the brain is the most important sex organ and this is what it, that is what it means, is that the meanings you're bringing to what you're doing are very, very impactful on arousal. Mm-hmm. For sure. So are meanings subconscious? Are they conscious? They're both. So a lot of times we may not like, we're sitting there, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Well, we're not aware of the fact that just that question is a meaning that's going to kill desire. <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, we're living out meanings and most meanings we are just living out. 
but they can become conscious. And the more conscious they are, the more we are able to perhaps make different choices or better understand what's getting in our way and do something differently, for example. Mm -hmm. So when you are working with a couple or teaching this Art of Desire class, if a woman comes into a marriage relationship and let's say she does feel like it's her responsibility to, to have sex so her husband doesn't look at porn and this is her job to to do this. How does she change that meaning? Where does that mm-hmm. shift start taking place? Well, I, first of all, I, I, the, one, the first thing I do when I teach my course is I help people just start to see the meaning. So, so you have to even start with the idea that this is a meaning that is never going to produce passion. Mm-hmm. This is a meaning that's only, you know, as Esther Perel says, it, sex can be work or it can be play. Well, you're in the meaning of work. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the meaning of work, which many husbands collude in because it's like, hey, you know, meaning it's terrible to be the higher desire person and feel rejected. So sometimes when we feel rejected, we go into pressuring and expecting and punishing, but then we are keeping it absolutely in the frame of work, not passion. So the first thing is to understand, I am thinking about sex as a job to do not as about a real choice. Mm. Now, of course, this is tricky in marriage. And, and, you know, the reason why this is a course that is over multiple days is it takes some time to understand what are the new meanings and what do they actually feel like. But the, the whole idea of I have to have sex because my husband dot, 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 or because my spouse dot, 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 it's just simply not true. Nobody has to have sex. I work with couples where the lower desire person has decided I'm not having sex anymore. (laughs) It it is a real choice. Now, it's not a choice without consequences. It's not a choice without impact on the marriage. But one has to get it out of I have to to I choose Mm -hmm. one way or the other uh, for it to be about oneself and one expressing oneself in the world rather than feeling like I'm a tool. I have to be used in some way. Mm. So the real mind shift then is I'm choosing this. I'm free to choose this. It's the freedom. And I don't have to. No has to be a legit answer in one's mind. One can't say, well, that's not possible. It's true. It's not possible without maybe the consequences you don't want. Mm -hmm. My spouse to be unhappy with me, the marriage to never be an intimate marriage. Perhaps my spouse stops desiring me if I, if I am overt about not desiring them. So we often don't like the consequences, but that's still different than we don't have real choices. We just don't have the choices we desire sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So then our sexual inhibitions obviously then come from the meanings that we attach to different sexual behaviors. Is that correct? Right. Yes. And they're rooted mostly in fear or shame. Is that right? Well, or good judgment, right? Uh, Really. Because, or, or decency, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, or meaning we are often inhibiting sexual impulses because it's not right to be sexual there or because it would be offensive to be sexual or because there's something going on in the marriage and in our lives in which being sexual is not a good idea. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about shame. Now, of course, it can be, I'm not, you know, good people don't have sex. Or if I'm a righteous woman or man, I don't have sex. Um, You know, we certainly can load it down with those 
ideas in a false way, but it's a little more complex than that. Like, do I actually feel that this person loves me? If I don't, even if I have a hard time admitting it to myself, you're going to have a hard time wanting to open up. Do I trust the person I'm with? Do I think they are faithful to me? Even if you don't want it to be true and you're trying to convince yourself otherwise, you're going to have a hard time surrendering into the pleasure there because your mind is mapping meanings that are in fact operating mm-hmm. often, not always, sometimes they're more internal, but but that are operating and therefore making being open sexually poor judgment. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you added that. I've kind of always thought shame and fear, but decency and good judgment makes so much sense if you don't feel safe. Also, if what's yeah. being asked of you doesn't feel decent or... Right. So in those situations... In some ways, taking away from your sense of self again, or remember that idea, like to do this is to kind of subject, you know, to, to do something that I really feel humiliates me. Mm-hmm. Now we can talk about that more because sometimes we have these immediate reactions that are not in fact true. Mm-hmm. But if you think your spouse is really truly in some sense using you, doesn't really love you, well, then your low desire is about your own self-respect. Mm-hmm. And then that meaning absolutely is essential for you to... Yeah, to pay attention right. to and, and deal with, right. Okay. So then moving on to when you have that knee-jerk reaction that, ah, no, inhibitions obviously can be challenging, particularly when one spouse wants to learn or experiencing something new and different than the other spouse. So what if the knee-jerk reaction is, no, I don't think that's me. I feel like Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's decent. Help us work through how a couple can get on the same page with experiencing or trying different things. Yeah. Good. So so one thing is that I think a central tension in marriage in general is how do I belong to me and belong to you? So this is kind of the founding framework of my relationship courses is that's a central question. How do I be true to myself, but also be true to the marriage? And if you're going to answer that question, honestly, a marriage is going to push you to grow And to try things you've never tried before, to extend yourself in ways you haven't extended yourself before, because you're making room for another person who is different than you by design. That's why you were attracted to them in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't mean like, hey, you have to be true to me and just whatever I think and feel, you know, that's, that's a one person marriage and you're supposed to accommodate me. And there's ways that men can push for that and ways that women can push for that. So if you're really being true to that question of how do I be true to me and how do I be true to you, that's going to come into sexuality. Now, somebody who wants to try something new is trying to belong to a deeper part of themselves in the marriage. I want the marriage to have more freedom in it. I want it to feel more alive. I want to go on more adventures with you. The one who's like, you know, they're trying to belong to themselves because they're saying like, stop wanting all these things, you know, Mm -hmm. like when is, I I just want what makes me comfortable and I don't want to be stressed. Okay. And there's a legitimacy in both desires, right? You can't, can't we just be happy with what we have, you know? Uh And, you know, there, there really is, again, because there's a tension in life between security and adventure, right? Home and novelty, newness. So I think that getting at what is going on in the question. So am I just throwing up walls because I just make the demand in marriage that 
my spouse accommodate my anxieties? Is that my kind of knee-jerk response and I'm good at getting him or her to just not ask for much because I've convinced them that this is not a loving thing to do. Mm -hmm. A lot of people do that. Mm -hmm. Revolve around the worst in me in the name of love. And so am I not really a giver? Am I not really willing to try things and be uncomfortable for the benefit of my partner because I love them? And I think, you know, I don't think anybody should do anything that genuinely undermines their, their sense of self. But you don't want to take how you feel the first, second, or third time you try something as necessarily the answer, right, of what can be acceptable to you. You know, there's a lot of things that just, first time I ever tried French kissing, I was like, that's the most disgusting <laughs> thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, I remember that response too. <laughs> <laughs> right, and it's not until you sort of grow in it and you start realizing, wait, no, there's a whole way that this can be an amazing thing. And it, but usually not what you're figuring out when you're 16. <laughs> okay. But anyway, so <laughs> so I think that, you know, there's there's ways you can grow in it and bring yourself into it and find, oh, wait, this is me. Now, if something is, you know, I've worked with people where uh, one partner is looking at porn and then just wants their spouse to accommodate these kind of fantasies. And it's not about I want adventure and pleasure. I mean, for some people it is that, right? Even if they have looked at porn. But it's like, I, I want the fantasy of control. I, I don't even mean the fantasy. I want you to do what I want. That's how I'm going to feel that I'm strong, that I'm desirable. And so I don't care that much how you feel about it. I just want what I want. And for a person to say no, like, or, or to feel that every time they do it, they feel a form of genuinely being used. Well, often it's because they are being used mm -hmm. and, and that's a meaning to pay attention to also. So I know I sound like I'm kind of like uh, speaking out of two sides of my mouth here. I am. But that is to say, you have to figure out which your situation is. The problem is, is often the people, we often interpret it in exactly the wrong way. The people that tend to make the marriage revolve around them are like, yeah, exactly. I'm being used. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not true. And the people that often are being used are so quick to self-doubt that they think maybe I'm just not loving enough. So it's a little bit tricky giving advice kind of in this general sense because we often, what our vulnerability is, we often interpret information in the li in line with our vulnerability, right. what we're already weak at. Mm -hmm. It is such a fine line. And I really appreciate what you said, that perhaps the the real key would be to assess honestly, not to your anxieties and fears, but really to assess is, am I, do I feel like I'm showing up in this? Am I choosing mm -hmm. this? Even if I'm uncomfortable yes. with it, do I feel like exactly right. I'll, I'm going to choose it any, and try? Absolutely. This is very, very important. And the brain cares about this too, going back to meaning. If the brain knows, okay, that you are making a choice, that you're in the driver's seat, that you're in control, and this is actually related to surrender even, is, is the brain knowing still that you're in control? And I don't mean controlling other people, but controlling your choices. Mm -hmm. Because when you're like, I choose this, well, then your brain doesn't have this reactive, self-protective stance. But if you're like, I have to do it because, you know, otherwise he or she will be upset or whatever, then 
then your brain goes into this, you know, again, something as personal as sex, your brain is vigilant about protecting you. Mm -hmm. And so if it feels like you are just a victim of your choices, desire goes down, reactivity goes up, pleasure goes down. And so you have to really keep track of, am I keeping myself in the choosing position? Because I am ultimately always a chooser as an adult, Mm -hmm. right? And so, except for times of actual force and abuse, right, I am a chooser in my life. So what do I choose and what can I really back up in my choices? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I really appreciate this conversation. I think a lot of, I always talk about ghosts in the bedroom because I think a lot of times those, although there's not really ghosts in the bedroom, but in our minds, we're yeah. maybe hearing things from our past that were said by a church leader yeah. or from a parent. And if those kinds of thoughts are in our minds that what they said or yeah. what you heard, it's definitely yes. going to feel, that's going to be really yeah. inhibiting. That's right. You don't want to invite those people into the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> so got to shut off the mind with those voices. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. That's right. And what that is, is this kind of external judgment. Mm-hmm. And also totally. what I would say is, is what we're doing is we're saying other good people, the good people, they're not sexual. They wouldn't be doing this thing that I'm doing. And they might not be if they don't know how to have pleasure and joy in their lives. But that's different than those are the good people. Mm. So a lot of times our notion of what is good is non-sexual, is erudite and and always kind of rigidly um, rejecting of pleasure. We have a notion of spirituality and righteousness that is pleasure denying, which is not our theology. And, and so we have to be careful that what we've sometimes admired, and I think how we can sound in church conversation is like sex is the enemy. Sex is, is the unrighteous. And the book I'm working on is an argument fully against that, that there is deep wisdom in the body, deep we are that we might have joy that's connected to our ability to give and receive pleasure in line with our highest values, right? With what we want to create. But a lot of times we have a knee jerk. That means not sexual. That means not pleasure. That means rigid and careful and anxious. And I think those are all younger meanings, not really meanings of adult wise people in an intimate marriage. So well said, and I've often found it so confusing how our theology is so beautiful and so freeing and liberating, actually, sexually, and yet mm-hmm. the way that we've been taught about sexuality is is not. Yeah, I right. It's sad. To yes, me. because most of the people teaching are themselves anxious, haven't yet worked it out. I mean, I remember thinking with my own young women's leaders, I could tell who actually liked sex and who didn't by the way they would talk about it. <laughs> and and I was listening to the ones who liked it. I, I was like, okay, what do they get? You know? And, and so um, I think that, uh, yeah, we often are communicating our own anxieties and fears to our children, to those we teach without even realizing it. And so the more we've worked this out in ourselves, the more we can guide others into what the good life really is and how morality is integrally linked to it. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Jennifer, I love the work of Beverly Whipple. Her research on the female sexual response is labeled seduction, sensations, surrender, reflection. I love those words. They just sound so feminine to me. Yeah. So much healthier than desire, arousal, orgasm, resolution. Mm. I'm curious about your thoughts of these two different descriptions of sexual response. So that's amazing. So can you give me those words again? Because I don't know her work. So seduction. So she, her, Mm. like, so desire would be seduction, arousal, sensations. Mm. Orgasm is surrender and resolution Mm. is reflection. Yeah. Well, it's true. What, What I think they're doing, again, I don't know her work. So this is just my top of my response. But what I think she's accounting for is a lot of a more feminine orientation to sexuality. And Look, I hate being prescriptive of women should be feminine, men should be masculine. I, I think people need to be true to themselves. But I think what we do in our culture that's often very androcentric, it's, you know, like even the the arousal, you know, the the arousal, I can't remember the, my, the um, Masters and Johnson response right now. Desire arousal. Desire arousal. Yeah, so it was the desire arousal response. Orgasm. And then uh, and re- retract- and oh, orgasm retraction. Okay, resolution. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I'd forgotten those. But yeah, that's sort of a masculine map right. of, of how it goes. They start with desire, right? Then they, you know. and so I think that for the more feminine position is more around the seduction is a part of it. You know, you don't want to teach girls or women that being desirable is the only way to be. You want girls and women to understand their own desires and to know what they want and what defines them. Okay. This is a lot of what my course is, but on the other hand, feminine, a feminine sexuality has a lot to do with being desirable. Mm -hmm. Like to see ourselves as somebody that it would be good judgment to want to be close to that. He doesn't just want me because I'm the only legitimate outlet. He wants me because yeah, it makes sense. Okay. I'm attractive. (laughs) And I don't mean you have to fit all the conventional versions of attractiveness, Mm -hmm. but you understand that you're a good soul in this person's life and you can see why they'd want to be close to you. That's a very powerful part of women's arousal. And when women talk about their fantasies, they're often talking about being the most desirable one, being the one that's chosen among other options. I remember being at a camp with my sister and, and our kids and there was a book on the shelf. I pulled it off and it was a women's like, what's the word? Like a, like a bodice ripper type book. And so I was just reading the first page and, you know, it's all about this man who has, of course, all the, you know, all the money and all the power and everything. <laughs> and is like choosing her among all these other women that would want him, but she's the one. And he's saying, you are exquisite. Okay. So I'm like, okay, this captures what women like is that I'm considered desirable and there's nothing wrong with enjoying your desirability and feeling good about it and having it be a part of your sexuality. I think it's nothing wrong with that. That's a wonderful part of it. And so I'm chosen. Okay. Okay. So then he's, she says, so seduction, surrender in, is for orgasm. Is that, am I missing Surrender is orgasm. Mm-hmm. Sensations. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah, sensation, right? Yeah. So taking in the stimulation is the sensation, taking in that care surrender is not a loss of self surrender in orgasm is to you know when i when i am at my workshops i ask women what would you rather do give or receive you know almost always the, i mean it is always the majority of the room would rather give than receive hmm. now that makes it look like you are all a bunch of selfless people but 
that's not really the <laughs> what's working. I mean, what's at at stake there? What I would say is that we feel more in control when we're giving, and when we receive, well, we're letting somebody impact us. We're letting somebody affect our lives. We're acknowledging that we're not just able to do everything for ourselves, but that someone else can really affect us. We're willing to say we deserve pleasure. We deserve good things in our life. And so to surrender wisely, right, to surrender to someone's care, love, desire to offer you pleasure is a great act of strength, not weakness, And so it's not just, I'll do whatever you want. Tell me what to do. It's not that. It's not letting go of your own personal agency. It's the agentic decision to say, it is wise to be open here and to let myself be given to, to receive this goodness into my life. And so, yes, I can have orgasm. Yes, I can have pleasure. And when you let yourself receive, I mean, first of all, it's a great kindness to both of you. It's Mm -hmm. the receiver and the received. Men want so much to be received. And so to be received like that and to let that goodness impact your soul, you will be a happier, kinder, more generous person when you can receive honestly. So there's real strength in surrender and it's the best in the feminine position. So did I miss any words? No, you did. (laughs) That was beautiful. I wanted to talk about what surrender means. And I think you really summed it up there. But for us to surrender is at the heart of receiving pleasure. And it is a choice that you're making. Yes. Where you are, in a sense, giving control up to just Mm. seeing what happens. And I think it's the control Mm. piece that a lot of times women have a hard time surrendering, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so what I think of it is more like I'm going to put my sword and my shield down. The thing that I think it gets us a little confused in the surrender language is that someone else is dominating. Someone else has conquered. I don't, that's not really the right idea because you're not really giving control away. You are still a chooser. You are not without choices. Now you're not vigilant you're not making sure it goes the way that makes you feel in control, right? That's, that's mm-hmm. what you're surrendering is the vigilance and the having to manage the situation and the other person. Mm-hmm. So you're allowing them to impact you. You're allowing yourself to be given to. You're allowing yourself to receive the goodness that's there without trying to micromanage what it is. But it doesn't, keep you from making choices that you could in any moment say this, I don't want this, Mm -hmm. or I don't want to ever do that again. Or I, you know, like, I think we're so afraid that then we are powerless and no one in their right mind wants to be powerless. That's not a smart position to ever be in, in life. And so we're not surrendering our agency. We're surrendering our vigilance and our fear-based control. Hmm. Boy, I love the way you said that. When we consider the meanings we have about sex or specific sexual behaviors and then consider the idea of surrendering, it seems like a balancing act that we need to quiet some of the meanings that lead to inhibitions in order to surrender more fully for the pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, again, in my course, I have women like write down what are meanings that tend to come into my mind in sex, right? Where when I'm getting close to orgasm and to take a look at them and see how they're constricting of one sense of self, 
Hmm. I'm taking too long. He must be bored. You know, I, I'm just, what is wrong with me? Okay. Those are just, your anxiety is going up. Even if stimulation is going up, your anxiety is going to keep you from hitting that orgasm threshold. So what are meanings that you could change there? Well, I am worth this much time. Mm -hmm. The measure of me is not whether or not I orgasm. The measure of me, if I'm going to measure myself, is how I show up to this marriage and how I show up to myself. It's the courage to get better at receiving. So, so you're, I you know, have people more deliberately shift those meanings and maybe even practice those meanings in their mind so that they can have replacement thoughts. And it's a powerful tool because, again, your body is reacting to your thoughts more than you realize. And so the more you deliberately shift those thoughts into expansive thoughts, into thoughts of self-care, thoughts of investment in your sense of self in this marriage, well, your body is freed up at and, and that point. So then I'm hearing that you're suggesting in the moment when you're receiving pleasure and, and you're thinking that it's taking too long, instead of thinking I'm taking too long, we change the thought right there that I'm worth the investment of time. So we just right in yeah. the moment do the 180. Okay. 100%. It's okay that it's taking a long time. Mm-hmm. It's okay I am okay and and I'm a chooser here. If if I decide I don't want to keep going, I don't have to keep going. So I'm also not trapped. And do I want to try something different right now? But I am worth the investment of our energy for me to get better, for us to get better at my husband giving and me receiving pleasure. Mm-hmm. That is how we'll grow. That is how we work yeah. through that anxiety and come out stronger on the other side of it for sure. I always like to use the phrase to give yourself permission. How would you describe what that means to give yourself permission to what? Well, yeah, it it is a form of self-love, in my opinion. Well, it can. So it depends, of course, what you're giving yourself permission to. But what we often do in the kind of feminine strength and vulnerability is that we are wired somewhat, most of us uh, women, are wired to be very aware of the needs of others. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very good for rearing children because we're able to track. You know, I remember trying to write my dissertation while we had a two-year-old. Mm-hmm. My husband would be fully the one in charge and, and willingly in every sense. And I'd be sitting there writing, trying to block out my two-year-old and I'd be like aware that he needed to eat. And, <laughs> you know, my husband... <laughs> was fully like wanted to do his job well and take care of him so I could write, but he just wouldn't be tracking it in mm-hmm. the same way that I was. So I'd be like trying to write being like, Hey John, Hey John, I think Graham needs it, you know? <laughs> and, and it's like, I almost couldn't help it. Okay. So that's true. Of course, where it can be a problem is that it gets overactive and we're so aware of what everyone around us wants that we can't we underattend to our own desires. We underattend to what matters. And so we, we think, well, it's, yes, I could sacrifice this so this person has this good thing, but we have a very hard time giving ourselves permission in equal measure to have good things in our life, mm-hmm. to even investment of energy towards our own development. Okay, I'll make sacrifices so my husband can do this, so my child can do that, but I can't ask anyone to make sacrifices for me to grow in some way. And so I think that oftentimes, you know, self-respect is something we do more than we feel up front, that we're doing things that 
we're giving ourselves permission to go and take that class or to spend some time on something we want to develop or create and quieting that voice of like, if you're a good woman, you just sacrifice yourself and giving yourself permission to step into your strength. Now, strength isn't bullying everybody else and bulldozing everybody else's well-being. That's, that's weakness. Weak people bulldoze. But strength is like, how do I also thrive in my life? Sometimes I know for myself that was putting those desires on the back burner for a period because being true to my values was to back burner for the, for the more immediate needs of small children. Mm -hmm. But in time, it was time to say, okay, now those things need to come to the front burner and those things, there's more room for them. And it's important. And if I don't do it, the family still won't do as well, because if I neglect myself, then it is actually becomes wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. For me to back burner my desires. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you saying that, especially about mothers of young children. I, I, Mm -hmm. well, I, this is the age of my own children right now. They're mothers and of young children. And often they feel so swallowed up in their lives and every day seems to be the exact same. And it gets oppressive and even depressive at times. And they feel like it's never going to end. And I really try to let them know it it will end. This isn't going to last forever. And it's okay if this is aligned with your values, what you're doing, and this is what you think is going to be best for the whole of the family, putting your needs on the back burner right now isn't such a bad idea. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's how, but again, it comes back to the question of agency. If you are doing it because you think you should, because, well, what I mean is you have to prove that you're a decent woman. You're doing it because other people want you to do it. That's going to be much more depressing than no, of my options, this is what I choose. I've sometimes told the story of being like having a special needs child and a newborn baby, my husband had lost his job and I was offered a job that I would have really loved to take. But I decided I'd rather not take it. I don't want to turn over the responsibility of these two kids to anyone else. So that was hard. A lot of people thought I was crazy for making that decision, but I still felt like that was in line with my values. Being home with my newborn and my special needs child was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, by what I mean is that every day was the same. It was, I felt so powerless sometimes. My husband was traveling, going to the grocery store was more challenging than writing my dissertation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was so difficult to just do what my son needed and my newborn needed. And so that was really, really challenging. And so I had to often take myself back to my choices because Otherwise, I started feeling depressed. Like I started feeling like life is just acting upon me. I'm not an actor in it. And then I would remind myself like, no, I, I could turn this over to someone else. I could go get a job. I don't have to be an at-home parent. But when I really pushed myself, it was like of all my crappy options, the one I desire most is to be here doing this. And that was an antidepressant for me because it restored my sense of agency, even in a very difficult situation. And so 
it's just really important. And I, I never stayed home because other people thought I should. Mm-hmm. I really didn't. Mm-hmm. I stayed home because I thought I should. Yeah. And that's really important. If what am I really willing to back up? It's easy to do what others say we should do because there's almost like a safety in it. Mm-hmm. But it it's short lived when things get tough. And then we start to resent and we start to feel trapped. And so our sense of agency, you know, this is one of our core beliefs but we easily lose track of that sense of what do I choose? Mm-hmm. What do I desire? Right. What can I back up in my life? Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that reframe. I chose to stay home because I felt like that was the right thing for my family too. And that did, it does give you, even though it's a difficult time and it wasn't the hardest time for me as well, I did mm. choose to be the actor in my life by yeah. doing that. So. Yeah. And we can choose to do that by showing up in the bedroom as well. That's right. If I were, if you were to wave a magic wand and have women or couples understand just a couple of the most important principles regarding, you know, get let allowing yourself to free up your inhibitions, allow yourself to show up and and stretch yourself sexually. What would those little bits of information be that you would want them to know? Well, again, going to the heart of meaning is that sexuality and the body and pleasure are not the problem. Mm-hmm. That They are not the risk because uh, we have that in our minds. Like pleasure, you know, t- it's a slippery slope. Sexuality, slippery slope. So like, why am I even putting my toe in this, right? <laughs> it's going to swallow me up. And that's just not true. And you are an agent. It's not stronger than you are. It's how you relate to these gifts. These are gifts from a loving God. The body is essential to our development. Sexuality by extension is essential to our development. And pleasure is a part of joy. Okay, these are core ideas. The issue is how am I relating to this? I would say it's as sinful to reject the body pleasure and and sexuality in a marriage as it is to be indulgent with it. Okay, I mean, maybe, maybe it's more destructive to be indulgent with it, but just a little more because it's very destructive to our souls even to say like my body and my pleasure and my sexuality are a bad part of me while I am an embodied sexual being capable mm-hmm. of pleasure. God made us this way for a reason. The point is how am I relating to it? Am I relating to this wonderful, weird part of life in a way that creates goodness? Um, I remember reading C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. And, you know, he does a really wonderful treatment of eros love. He talks about, you know, the other Greek words for love and, and what they mean. But in eros love is a very particular kind. It's romantic love. It's sexual love. It's love that we have for a partner and that we have done more destructive in C.S. Lewis's words, I'm paraphrasing here, to the souls of, of human beings by writing books about the sanctified ways in which we should be sexual. Okay. Oh, <laughs> Meaning wow. when we bring too much of this sort of mm-hmm. demand and measurement and judgment and there's only a righteous way because he's saying, you know, what's at the core of Eros love is play and freedom and weirdness. And so he's saying, if we take ourselves too seriously, now he's very clear, you don't want to do anything that is unloving, exploitative, takes advantage, but otherwise you need to be playful. You need to let your weirdness have a space that can be loved and laughed at. It's like the best energy around sexuality is laughter 
at ourselves, at sex, but it's a kind of grown-up play or it can be. And so if we're bringing all this judgment and fear, it really, Eros goes away. It, it can't thrive there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so well said. So Jennifer, you know this is the Live Your Why podcast. I've asked you about your why in the past. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about what is your why today? How is your why today maybe a little different than it was in your earlier years? Or is it? Maybe it's the same. Life is, you know, is so short. (laughs) (laughs) And, And, you know, I remember being those early years with kids thinking, it will never end. When will I stop mm-hmm. changing diapers and so on? And it's true. It feels like a treadmill of, uh, of, of thankless work sometimes, but it also goes so fast. I mean, you know, my children are almost all gone from the home and it's, uh, it's really pushed me into a different phase. And also seeing my mom who's ill and has lived a wonderful life, but probably won't be with us a lot longer. And, and so it's, I think it's pushed me towards like, how do I create the most good? How do I live in a way that's not about managing what others think and feel about me, but doing what I can to help those around me? So maybe that's always been my why, but I think I feel it in a different Mm -hmm. way as I've kind of moved into a different phase and I'm in some ways more at peace with myself than I was when I was younger and... Uh, I don't know the answer yet fully to what that means, but I think uh, in terms of what I may do in the years ahead, but I think that there's some wonderful things about being in this phase because, well, just the ego demands start, they've been pummeled out of existence. <laughs> Not out of existence, I, I wish, but but, <laughs> but they don't dominate so much, yeah. Yeah, that's so true. I, I My children are all gone now and... I can remember those early years thinking, wow, this is never going to end and it's over. And I hold my little grandchildren on my lap and read to them. And I think, I wish I would have enjoyed doing this with my own children as much as I enjoy doing it with my grandchildren. Right. And And maybe that's just impossible. Because I think when you're a grandparent, you're freed up to, Mm you know, I listen to my mom talk to my kids and she just cherishes everything about them. You are so this, you are, so, I just, I, you know, and I, my mind's got more like, well, they could work on that. They really could do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not proud of that, but they, you know, I feel more like I got to help them do the things the right way, whatever. And so I'm like, gosh, you know, she's, she's just wiser. She's freed up, mm-hmm. you know, to really think about what really matters and lives in a more cherishing way. And so it, but it's hard to get there without going through, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you, you can only be a new parent by being a new parent. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. It takes all the steps to get here. Well, Jennifer, thanks yeah. for being on the podcast today. It's always a pleasure to learn from you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work.